Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined by Brian Gottlieb. Man, I just got to tell you, you are a very smart and wonderful human being. Thanks. I don't know why you feel that way, but I, I am happy to hear that you feel that way. You also are a very smart and wonderful human, if that's what we're doing to kick off this podcast. I mean, that's that's fine with me. You know, it feels a little disingenuous when you follow someone's compliment with like the exact same compliment. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's fair. Uh, but I'll take it. You know, <laughs> I'll just pretend like that didn't happen and that you just apropos of nothing said that. There's but, nothing I could do about it. I mean, I do feel that way. I, I understand what you're saying. It's it's a very fair complaint about my compliment, <laughs> but I, it's genuine. I don't know what to tell you. Anyway, I bring this up both because it's true and also because you do not need the success of Lotus Field in Pioneer to validate you, my friend. You have plenty mm-hmm. of other things going on for you. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. yeah. This is this is good. You do appear to be very smart, but you know, d- d- don't let it get to your head. Let the other stuff get to your head. And stuff. I, I think I am less excited about my call here than almost anyone else. Like <laughs> I've, I've been playing Lotus Field for a long time. I've felt this way for a long time. And like, sure, this sort of mets that out. Incredibly small sample size. Incredibly small. Lotus Field was not very well represented. In fact, it was less than 2% of the field this weekend. So, you know, when the field is that small, you're talking about very small win-loss differentials, changing that number pretty dramatically. And yeah, I mean, like I get a bunch of stuff wrong too. So (laughs) unless I'm going to uh, take a demotion lap when I get something wrong, such as something on my top 10 list, then I don't really get to take a celebration lap when I get something right. So well, uh, I think I think this was a good call. I think I had a lot of good reasons for liking Lotus Field, and I'm I'm happy it did play out that way. I'm happy for the folks who chose to bring that deck. I doubt I influenced anyone's opinion all that much. I don't think anyone played Lotus Field. They're uh, probably already there. Yeah, I don't think I talked anyone into it, but stoked for the people who did well with it. Hell yeah! I don't. It it, it reminds me of when I was talking about like the Risen Reef Omnath stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And I was just like, yeah, maybe. That, but with the Traverse package, would be really good. And no one did anything. No one no one believed me, right? People continued to not play Risen Reef. And then three months later, I played in a tournament and like pretty easily won. And it's not like it, it then like took over after that or whatever. But I was like, yeah, I mentioned this like every two weeks on the cast or whatever. And just like no one and no one ever did anything with it. And it feels similar to this where it's just like, Whenever you were asked about Pioneer, you were like, oh, Lotus Field, I guess. I don't know. I, I guess that is a point of distinction is that I never really wavered from this opinion that this deck was very good. So yeah. I, I will say that is a little different than just like randomly choosing a deck out of a hat. It has always felt just sort of better than everything. Else. I don't know how else to describe it. Like, yeah, it's got a fail rate. Yeah, it's got some tougher matchups, but it, it's just better. It's it's consistent enough. It's powerful enough. It rewards understanding and play and there are some things that it would struggle against but i don't know they weren't really all that present this weekend and you know if you get a 50 50 matchup against the most played deck and then decent matchups everywhere else if if not very favorable matchups everywhere else you're in a good spot even things like one of the things you mentioned as a foil to lotus field last week was something like mono white humans which was well represented and I believe ultimately ended the run of the Lotus Field player in the the USRC. But the matchup was fine. Like if you look at the data, again, small sample size, but like you could beat it, you could find ways. And that's the way I feel about everything with Lotus Field is that your awful matchups are not quite that awful and your good ones are really, really good. You can still scam them. Yeah. Arboreal Grazer can scam anyone on a good day. Absolutely, yeah. If those Grazers show up early, they're willing to do the work for you. Including you. They could also scam you. Yeah, that's that's fair. They're uh, equal opportunity scammers, I guess. Yeah, I mean, grifting's all the rage these days, so Arboreal Grazer, looking to get in on that. Man, I don't like grifters, and I don't really like Arboreal Grazer. I think I think there might be a connection there. Could be. It, it's It's one of those things where you have this inkling that you don't like someone, right? And then you're proven right eventually, and it feels both good and bad. Uh, do you feel like you've been proven right about Arboreal Grazer, though? Because I look, no, when no, no, I no. first it, saw that card, I was very low on it. It's good. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we were we were low, where it was like, does this do anything, right? Where, like, are, is there a deck where you're willing to sacrifice a card effectively 
to get some acceleration. And then uh, we found some shells like week one, you were playing it in field of the dead. Right. And it's like, Oh, well, this is the perfect home for a card like this. That is, that is true. Yeah. I, I guess it was some of that thing where you, there was no existing deck for it. And like throughout a lot of magic's history, I do think this card would have been quite bad, but the game changed so much at the period arboreal grazer came into fruition that a, a lot of things around it also changed and empowered it very, very well. Yeah, and I mean, it It was initially a one-of in Amulet because you could effectively Summoner's Pact for a Lotus Petal, but yep. Azusa basically did the same thing. And I think it kind of did the thing where it's like, oh, you play the one Grazer and then you draw it naturally, and it's like, wait, should I just play more of these? Yeah, and then, it turns out these are just good. Yeah, yeah, it's... I mean, you don't need your Tribe Scout to live anymore, and this is a more reasonable blocker against Goblin Guide and Swift Spear and stuff like that. So Yeah, it, right. it was a huge swing for the super aggressive matchups in Modern as soon as that card showed up. And it, it's, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's a huge swing. I don't, the deck couldn't exist without it. Like, you need some kind of stopgap against any kind of aggressive list, and Grazer's just enough to do it. So, But then... You, you play some games with three in your deck. And you're like, oh, this is really good. And I felt pretty far behind. Would I need to draw it? Maybe I should play the fourth. And then you start to get scammed. You can be scammed. I've, I've been there before. The, the every grazer hand that just doesn't do anything. I mean, it's a little different in the context of bounce lands, right? Like it's it's oh, yeah, yeah. You, almost never existent. But in Pioneer, it's it's weird for sure. It's, it's weird, especially when you're playing like 24, 25 land, yep. which is like kind of low. Absolutely. Um, but I, yeah, I was, I was more so thinking about Lotus Field when you're still playing like 30 lands and once upon a times and you draw two grazers and you just run out of lands to put into play and you just have this silly O3. And uh, thankfully that deck was busted and it didn't really matter, but it was still yeah, just like, yeah, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll stick with three, you know. Anyway, this podcast is brought to you by the Twitter account of Frank Karsten because Frank did his thing, compiled all the data that you could ever possibly want. So if you want to look at the, the way that he broke it down and everything, we're going to talk a, a, about a lot of it. But, you know, Carson underscore Frank on Twitter. Good dude. Also did this like metagame roundup thing on magic.gg, which is another thing that we're going to reference a lot. So, uh, yeah, basically this this thread is all the stuff that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, this is the exact content I would work hard to put together back in the day and, you know, maybe do it as a, an article. And now I just get to go to Frank's Twitter account and he does all the hard work and we get to talk about it. So I am incredibly thankful for what he's done here. I think it's invaluable service to the magic community. And I, I'm really happy to be able to analyze this data because this is the stuff I find quite interesting. This pioneer metagame, I think showed quite a bit more health than most people would have expected going into this weekend it it has flaws i'm not going to you know scream about pioneer being the best format ever there's are, certainly some are the linearity. games fun yep that's a huge huge problem here but as in terms of metagame balance i mean it's slam dunk awesome yeah. awesome it might be in fact one of the best metagames magic has presented in a very long time you look at just the top eight spreads so so diverse all over the place and then if you just look at the decks played, you know, 20%, 14%, 11%, and then a whole host of like six to one percent. That's a really, really nice spread, especially because the 20% deck did not do well. Yeah. Not a not a top-notch performance at all. And that was the deck that everyone was afraid of going into this event. So ban it. Man, yeah. uh, look, there's again, there's again, still a if, case. There's yeah. still a case for banning Nikdos. That's the problem here. Uh, if it, but if it's not fun and it restricts future design space, then maybe, but it's hard. I don't know. Again, we talked a bunch about bannings and pioneer and how you're supposed to shape the format last week. I still don't know the answer to the question after this, because I do still think there's a problem with this format. I do think you can make it better. I don't know the other what thing, the balance of equities favors here. The other thing, I don't know if I mentioned this last week is just like the players don't like it. Yeah. And that, that just might be recent enough, but again, it is, you know, vocal Twitter mm -hmm. minority in a lot of instances, that is where the, the feedback chain comes from most of the time. And you can look at, I don't know, just like play rates of events on Pioneer and like try and figure out if people are having fun with the format or if they enjoy it or whatever. But 
other than that, I mean, the, the best feedback you can get is directly from the human. But the thing I did talk about last week is that the human can't necessarily tell you what it is they actually want or would yes. respond favorably to. So it, it is one way to go about things. You know, it's just like if the players aren't having fun, then it's like, okay, ban it. But like, we also haven't heard from all the players, right? This is, this is not a democracy and it probably should be. Yeah, there's there's no way to get that kind of information. It's a real problem. Right. And your job is just like the job of the magic player is to work from very small sample sizes. Your job as the magic ban and restricted list overseer is to work from weird, very flawed sample sizes that are pointed in a particular direction. And you have to figure out how much of that is truth because if you use it and you if you just are willing to discount everything, being like, oh, they don't know what they want, why would we ever listen to them? That's a huge problem too. You have to figure out how to balance and find that middle ground yeah. of being receptive, but not overreacting. Yep. No, you're definitely right. Uh, the way that I generally try to go about things outside of, you know, stirring up drama on a podcast is what is the situation in front of me? Because like that, that is the only thing that you can actually control, right? Like we can scream until our face is blue about how Nick does is not fun or whatever, but it doesn't matter if this is currently what the format looks like. And you're just better served by not complaining or whatever. Just yep. say, say your piece, get your feedback out there if, if that's what you want to do, but then it's out of your hands. So given that this is the state of things now, uh, Mono Green, most popular deck, zero copies in top eight of the Atlanta Regional Championship. And I believe the top eight was also eight different decks. Yep, that is correct. So eight different decks and not the biggest deck in the field. So, yeah, Aaron Forsyth tweeting very happy tweets about, you know, look, look at look at this top eight. It looks great. As he should. I mean, yeah, it, he's it, right. it was it was a phenomenal looking top eight. And you go and look mono green devotion stats. And I, I assume we'll probably work through most of the win rates here. But since we're talking about it, mono green devotion, 48.6 percent win rate. Now, I don't know if that tells the whole story, because I, I do think that a lot of people brought mono green devotion lists that were the same as they were before, you know, maybe they were on like love struck beast tech at this point, you know, they added Which, a stone brain to the sideboard. Well, it's like the love struck beast thing. It's like, Ooh, so exciting. It's like, I would be very hesitant to call that tech, you know, it's just Agreed. like, it's, it's just a, a stop gap. Essentially. It's the same deck as three months ago, effectively. Yep. Whereas everyone else has been working tirelessly to update their decks and figure out a way to beat you. And you've done nothing. Yep. And I, I think that is mostly what you see reflected here. However, I also think there was significant work to be done on this deck. I think some people did it. I agree. I, th I think they were rewarded for it. And I don't know if we're done with mono green yet. If you're looking at this and thinking you can celebrate and being like you won't see mono green again, I think there's a very good chance that the best built mono green list for this tournament were still either the best deck or certainly among the best decks for this tournament. It's just, it got flooded out by a lot of noise in these results here. And that's why you're seeing this low win rate. Cause these are just recycled, you know, at a stone brain at a cityscape leveler and call it a day. So the matchup percents that Frank has listed, he did basically like a bunch of decks against the five most popular decks. So, yep. uh, mono green against Rakdos was just an even 50% mono green against Phoenix was 47%. This all makes sense because all these decks are slanted to beat this deck, right? Like this is Correct. what they're built around. Yeah. And so what, what you were talking about where it's like, oh, you know, foot off the gas now. We don't have to worry about mono green. It did bad. It's 48.6%. That's not bad. And that's with everyone gunning for it, right? Yep. So it's like you still have to keep doing that. And also that was with kind of like the old deck list. And I expect the deck list to get better going forward. So take that for, for what it is. Like the, the deck is definitely not dead. By any means. Anyway, against mono white humans, 42%, a little bit better than what I would have expected. So, you know, love struck beast, maybe, uh, maybe it is technology. I don't know. Yeah, 40% feels like about the floor. Like it's really hard for the mono green devotion deck not to just get 40% because it's so explosive, can do such powerful things. It's going to be really hard to twist the matchup further than that. And against Azorius Control, 54%. Azorius Control, pretty popular, I guess just because people want to do their thing. I don't think that it is particularly good, and I don't think that most people think it's particularly good. And also, its metagame share was only 5.8%. So 
not a huge portion, but technically is the fifth most popular deck. Yeah, I, I put that up to like some control bias, honestly, like yeah. people wanting to have a control deck, that being the closest to pure control you can play in the format. So that's why I cut some popularity. And Demir control was almost a percent too. And I'm sure there's like Esper in here somewhere too. Yeah, maybe floating around in that other category. Yeah. Oh, uh, there it is at the bottom. 41% win rate for Esper control. Hell yeah. You you go, Esper players. Get Do it. your best. Get it. Okay, so the mono green devotion technology, this is actual technology, comes from yes. Brent, Brent Voss, who I think the last big thing that he did was basically come up with the ultimatum omniscience combo for historic yep Yep, that sounds correct and uh, certainly somebody who has made a name like if you want to know what the next step is for the metagame brent is proving himself someone very capable of finding that next step i would pay close close attention to what he's doing i I think he's just really good at figuring out engines and optimizing them like that that seems like a lot of the work that he's doing so again another person who posted this stuff very helpfully to Twitter, uh, Brent underscore VOS underscore. If you want to look at this, it just post like a real quick screenshot of a fairly normal mono green board state, but talks about how you can win deterministically with uh, four devotion and four lands on turn four and has two of what the hell is this card called again? Woodcaller Automaton, and I, I will I will happily read it for everyone because I think if you're not familiar with this deck, you're probably not familiar with this card. We've certainly never talked about it on the podcast. Uh, Woodcaller Automaton is a 10-mana prototype creature. Uh, its base form is an 8-8. It's got prototype for GG2, and then it comes in as a 3-3. And its text is, when Woodcaller Automaton enters the battlefield, if you cast it, untap target land you control. It becomes a treefold creature with base power and toughness equal with haste and base power and toughness equal to Woodcaller Automaton's power and toughness. It's still a land. So essentially, you're getting another untap for your Nykthos. Searchable by Karn. All decks in Pioneer will eventually become Twiddle decks. Just hidden hidden stringsing things and automatoning things. Let's do it. We're on the way to that. And this may sound like a small-ish upgrade, but the thing is, when you can find things as reliably as this deck can, like, like the whole deck is the Karn engine, right? So adding one thing is tremendous. And this card is so good that Brent went further than that. There's two copies main, one in the sideboard. So you can just draw this and get additional output. I'll also say that as a 10 mana play, once you have established good stuff going on with your mana, it's strong. Like it's it's a really strong play. There's there's no shame in putting a couple of eight eights on the board. So I am a huge fan of this piece of technology. I do think it has tightened up the engine. It has provided utility across the curve. Like the four mana three three blocker untap your Nykthos. Yeah, that's, you can you can play that in a lot of situations. And the modality of this card for a deck that is like it, it's a linear deck masquerading as a modal deck is the way I would describe Like you're kind of always just trying to do one thing, but you can get there in a lot of different ways. Right. Uh, this fits perfectly into that plan. It, it is contributing to that one big thing, but is a lot of different ways of making sure you eventually get to that point. So knowing that Brent is Brent, I know that he has probably done the research and figured this out. But like the first thing that pops into my head is like, is there a better way to be doing this than with the automaton? Cause like, we've seen how much Kiora can just kind of like turbocharge the deck and make a bunch of mana, right? It's like, yeah, why, why weren't we looking for more of these effects potentially? This one being an artifact certainly helps its case because it's fetchable off Karn. And if you play Karn, you know, tick up Karn, so it has a bunch of loyalty, you'll probably live through the turn, you untap, and it's like, well, if I just had a way to generate 10 mana off my Karn, I'd be able to win. And it's like, all you have to do is untap your land, right? So... That's going to stay in the sideboard for sure, because that's probably the best artifact that does that. But is there a different card? And I mean, there's there's creatures, but creatures bring with them fragility, right? It's right. why Kiora has succeeded so much in that role and why Woodcaller Automaton is also interesting because it does not need to yeah. survive to go ahead and do this thing. I don't want a thing that I need to untap with it. 
Yeah. Right. Because that is almost certainly not going to work out. But yeah, just something like the automaton where uh, it is kind of this one shot thing. I mean, the automaton, like you pointed out, is like you can just cast it, right? And kill people with it, which is. Yeah. Th- also, that contributes like play, paying the prototype, which I still don't think we've confirmed, but I'm now very confident in. If you play it as a prototype, you're also contributing to your devotion count as well, which is something that. You know, most of these cards are not going to be able to do like you can certainly find things to twiddle. Obviously, there's an entire deck built around twiddling, but usually you do it with instance with, you know, other effects, things like I mean, I guess there's things like Vizier out there. If you want to get real technical, that's not really an instant, but it's, it's very, very close to it. And all these things are not green. So being able to do this in green, in addition to all the other stuff, I mean, that's that's a huge, huge deal. Yeah, no, certainly the one downside that was kind of pointed out in the comments of Brent's Twitter thread is like, Oh, it doesn't work with storm the festival. And it's like, who cares? Because the card that people are playing instead, like love struck beast. I mean, that also doesn't contribute to like the combo. Yeah. It very technically works, but uh, it doesn't do anything. You're not happy about hitting that off storm. So also like the deck just has plenty of good storm hits. So I'm not super concerned about it. Uh, right. It, Almost everything else. Like if you, if you have a few whiffs, you're not super concerned. And like you said, if you hit one of your power cards, you're always taking the power card over whatever is sitting in the slot anyway. So it just doesn't matter that much to me. And uh, to kind of give this a little bit more credence, I guess, Brent started 3-3, then went 8-0-1, got ninth on breakers, uh, presumably because the 3-3 start, and yeah. said that there were a lot of instances where if he couldn't combo, he was going to lose. And the automaton was specifically the thing that allowed him to combo, which I believe it. Yeah. Makes a ton of sense to me because the deck is built the way it is to build towards that combo. But the faster the format gets, the less likely that is to happen. So your, your options are make the combo better or move away from it and play more defensive tools or whatever. And I don't know. It's weird given the amount of things that you need in your sideboard to Karn for in various spots and how the cards mostly just do one thing. Like they're not super versatile. It's not like you could trade out, you know, Cavalier of Thorns for like a different five drop or something to be a little bit more resilient and have the same robust engine. Like it's, it's just not going to work out. And I, I think a lot of that is true for basically every card in the deck, you know, 100%, 100%. Also, like maybe this is a function of the type of decks I have mostly played Pioneer with, but if in my experience playing a bunch of Pioneer, uh, virtually every game I play, I am if I lose, I am one turn away from winning. Yeah, and if I win, I was one turn away from dying. So all you have to do is change the math by one turn, and that is night and day. It is a complete flip in. A winnable matchup versus a losable matchup. And it's kind of like the thing where I kept coming back to with Lotus Field, where like, yeah, these upgrades are small, but you're just getting like 0.25 of a turn faster. And that's all you really needed to be to swing your win rate very dramatically. So it's very, very innocuous, this addition. I actually think it's huge. And I, I think it could very well be the thing that finally pushes Mono Green Devotion over that hurdle and gets it to a banned place because this card is not going to make things any more fun to play against. So you're just going to have more huge explosions. Yeah. And there are some game states where it's like, okay, if I, you know, spend my turn and my resources whittling away at their devotion a little bit, I know for sure that they can't combo next turn. Right. And this card Mm. just throws off all the math, right? Yes, it does. So that that's another thing. It, It just means that the ways that, people were trying to interact with this deck and like when they thought it would normally goldfish and everything like all that is just kind of out the window at this point. Oh, I think so. And it leaves us at a very weird place where if you were to review the data, the story of this weekend is Mono green devotion, not that good anymore. If you go deeper, I I actually think this is the biggest story to come out of the weekend. Honestly, I, I think this is a huge, huge change. I think it is a scary, scary path for the format to take. And despite you know, the card not ending up in top eights, despite it kind of getting buried in the data. I got ninth this, on breakers, man. Yep. This, this is the biggest innovation to come out of the weekend in my eyes. It, it's so insidious, right? 
to get ninth on breakers and be probably the biggest piece of innovation to come out of these big tournaments where mm-hmm. if you're just like a casual observer glancing at some top eight deck lists or whatever, you're just like, Oh, it's all the same. Nothing changed or whatever. But little do you know, the people who are really paying attention and really going deep are now working with this information, whereas you're not. And at, at some point you're going to be like, you know, where, where the hell did this come from? Right. I've, I've been in that spot before. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think it would be very easy to get caught unaware of this card. If you were not up on the Twitter discussion and uh, you know, following the the deeper stories from the weekend, you might not be prepared for this when you sat down the next time, but you, you should be, you 100% should be. All right. That's enough about mono green devotion we've devoted roughly 20 percent of our podcast to it which is just about, like the metagame yeah about the metagame sure that it deserves right so it's time to move on uh you want to talk about lotus field i don't have too much more to say about lotus field i i will mention that the top eight lotus field deck had two copies of zakama in the sideboard from the us rc which i thought was hilarious given my history with that card and fighting against it for a long time in Amulet, I, I honestly don't know what to make of it in Lotus Field. I'm not going to even give an opinion on it. I just thought it was very funny. As far as... Does it matter if you're getting like brainstoned a bunch? Is like is that why? or is That's it like, your new win condition? Maybe. Or, or Maybe. it's just like a different win condition. I don't even, yeah. I don't even know that it's good. There was right? multiple copies in the sideboard of that top eight list. And I, I guess the player, not someone I was familiar with. I'm, I'm blanking on the name right now. Sorry. But... Uh, very accomplished card game player, like a back-to-back epic card game world championship and like didn't lose for two years in the world championships of the epic card game. So oh. interesting to see them t- turn their attention to magic and, you know, kind of do it with a very innovative setup for the Lotus Field sideboard. I played in the first epic worlds. Okay. I don't know if it's the first one or the last two. You may have, you know, kind of predated this person's involvement maybe but yeah now now i'm wondering i don't know because yeah. i don't know, basically like we kind of got i don't know like celebrity invites sponsorship invites however you want to put it because game is made by former magic pros right so like oh let's invite some magic players and bogart their twitter accounts and get some some recognition on our game and like we started playing the game and it was like pretty fun pretty reasonable so it's like yeah we'll make a weekend out of this right it's like me tom ross uh todd anderson maybe maybe majors i don't remember but we we tested a bunch like tom ross was definitely the person who kind of like figured out the game quicker and better than the rest of us because that that's just tom that's how his mind works right and then we got there and we still just got all our asses kicked because Mm -hmm. The people who were like epic players like knew their stuff. Like they got it. And they were just doing stuff that didn't even cross our minds. You know? Yeah. A, a low variance game too, from what I understand. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Yep. It had been a while since I was just like so firmly outmatched. You know what I mean? Yep. It, it was demoralizing kind of, but then it was just like respect. Yeah, no, it's awesome to see people, you know, focusing on something new and find ways to approach games that aren't even on your radar. I think it's one of the reasons why we like games so much and sort of the allure of that other game to a very entrenched magic player is, oh, can I do this in another spot? Turns out the answer here was no, but very interesting to see a good epic player make the transition the other way. Yeah, and I don't know, with, with a deck that is it, like it's not like epic is like comboy or whatever, but it is it is very heavy on sequencing matters type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you mess up a little bit, you might just lose. Uh, it's it's a very punishing game. So uh, a deck like Lotus Field uh, kind of actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, that tracks. I I just don't know what else to add at this point, honestly, about Lotus Field though. A great performance, best win rate out of all these decks. If you didn't listen to me before, you probably won't listen now. So Lotus Field is still good. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, John Tation. If you scroll down the magic.gg article, they eventually feature the deck, which makes sense because it's, you know, this weird outlier with good matchup percentage. Anyway, the Lotus Field matchup spread was 50-50 against Mono Green Devotion. Again, these are absurdly small sample sizes, right? Like this is 56 matches against Mono Green, 28 and 28. Uh, Rakdos midrange, 59% to be expected. Uh, is it Phoenix? 85%. Again, kind of to be expected. Phoenix doesn't have a whole lot of disruption main. 
they can load up in the post board games, but a lot of those cards aren't very good right now. So I don't know why they would still be playing like eight to 10 counter spells in the sideboard. Me neither. And the other thing too, this is a thing that sort of drove me crazy when people would talk to me about Lotus Field. They would be like, oh, well, you know, your opponent just plays counter spells and you can't win. It's like, I want them to play counter spells. You want to play against decks that are like trying to inter- interact with you on the stack. Control matchups, I'd play control matchups all day long. Esper control, Demir, whatever form of control you want to play, I will happily play Lotus Field into it, and I feel extremely favored. Against mono-white humans, 35%. And There's there's the problem. Disruptive with a clock. That's what you don't want to face. Yes. And then against Azorius control, 53%, 8 and 7. Absurdly small sample size. Counterspells can can be good against you, for sure. If if they have, like, a lot, or if they have counterspells with the clock, but I, the I ones I always feared were the ones from Mono Blue Spirits. Like that, yeah. that was not oh, a matchup I enjoyed oh, yeah. playing because yeah. they did it with a clock. Yeah, I mean that that matchup seems like a nightmare, right? Yep, it's tough. And Azorius, it doesn't seem like it should be that bad. I feel like bigger sample size that that number probably goes up. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so I don't know. Like these these numbers seem pretty in line with me. Like Rakdos has some disruption and they have a reasonable clock. So they're going to get you sometimes, but not a lot. Mono White's really fast, has some disruption, nightmare matchup, but still winning at a reasonable clip, likely uh, thanks to Arboreal Grazer. A lot of work being done there, probably. Maybe thanks to Zakama. I, I mean, that was one of the cards. So I, I didn't get to watch the top eight, but in I think a Winland match, I saw John play against humans okay. and just just got Zakama down and like that that was it i mean the Zakama was actually answered at instant speed which was a very interesting consequence of open deckless um mm. for sure but at the same time the advantage was just so tremendous that it didn't even matter yeah i could see that i mean it, if you're in a spot where you just go like ritual ritual big card it is probably easier to do that and just try and win off the back of Zakama versus trying to like full combo and because yep. In, in a lot of spots, you're just like, well, I'd really like to have one more turn to like set up and like play some cantrips or whatever. But Mono White's obviously not going to give you that time, right? Yep. So, so you get you, a half combo. Yeah. So you, you have the ability to make a decent amount of mana, but then your hand is just a bunch of cantrips or whatever. You know your fizzle rate is going to be really high. But if you just have a big card to jam that actually stabilizes you, possibly wins you the game, then yeah, do that. Yeah. A Baral in this list too, which is just not a card I really recall seeing all that often in Lotus Field. So interesting little inclusion there. Another blocker. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like it. Yeah, one one medallion type of effect seems pretty good, right? Like you don't want to yeah. flood on them, but having one just seems nice. No, I'll take one. I think that's a really good one of. Yeah, and then the sideboard's pretty clean too. Like normally you just see a bunch of nonsense, but this is going pretty hard on Pithing Needle, presumably for Mono Green, uh, some Behold the Multiverses, presumably for Control, some Thought Distortions too. Yeah, like you could always just go higher on Thought Distortion if you expected more Azorius yep. Control type of stuff. There's yep, absolutely. two in this sideboard, but I've I've seen this be in much higher numbers. Uh, yeah, I, I guess what is a little different, the the Fae of Wishes count here may be a, a little lower. I, like I've certainly seen higher numbers of Fae of Wishes, only one here, so a little bit less access. Although there's the masterminds acquisition as well to go ahead and, and, you know, reach into your sideboard. You have Balagan recovery. That's the thing about Lotus field is that like, you just get to do a lot of stuff. Like whatever it is you want to do, if you have time, you will get to do it. Whatever your setup is, whatever you're trying to piece together, you will be able to do it. So understanding your plan in every scenario, knowing how you're going to do this stuff. It's, it's all very just rewarding. It's really nice to understand how to set up your deck. Hmm. I mentioned before that this deck has like 24 to 25 lands and it kind of does because of the Balagad recoveries, but it's like yep. 22 with four grazers. Like God, it's, it's a tight count. And I, three are Besajus and two are Odawaras. And, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I don't know about the two Odawaras. I, that's, that's very scary to me, but I get it. Like in theory, you should be able to cash them into your Lotus fields and dude, the, the brawl also making those lands a little bit cheaper. Yeah. Okay. Sure. That's That's nice. nice. Yep. It kind of justifies the one brawl and sort of justifies the second Odawara. If you decide that you really need that against mid range or whatever. Yeah, maybe very cool. All right. Next up. What do we got? What are we working with? 
Okay, let's talk. Let's talk fires and dimension decks, actually, because I think that's pretty interesting. Oh, and dude, this this could be an entire podcast on its own. Yeah. Well, so we have two decks to talk about when it comes to fires and dimension. There's enigmatic fires, which very very strong results, I would say. 54-3. We talked about Enigmatic Incarnation a little bit last week, I believe. Pretty big fan of that deck, how it goes over the top of some stuff. Sort of a middle-of-the-road mono-green devotion matchup. Really strong against Rakdos midrange exhibited here. Really strong against Is It Phoenix. So, uh, again, doing what you would sort of expect it to do, I think, and doing so very well. Then there's the other Fires deck, Karuga Fires. And if you want to talk about it, a scam. Th- this was the scam of this tournament. I don't know how so many people got talked into this deck, but we're looking at uh, around uh, just over 400 matches here. So this is probably in the top, what, six, seven decks played? Eighth. It was the eighth deck tied with Abzan Greasefang. Uh, this deck yeah. <laughs> was not good. It should it should not be tied with Greasefang. No, it was, it was not good. I mean, I... I I don't know what we were trying to accomplish here. A 28% win rate against the most played deck. And you can talk yourself into a 28% win rate if you just like crush everything else. This deck doesn't. I don't I don't think it really crushes anything. A very good Rakdos mid-range matchup, which sure, I mean, makes sense. Uh, everything else though, again, middle of the road. I understand Companion is a hell of a mechanic. This format is too fast to mess with Karuga. I, I just don't think you can get away with it here. And playing one spell on turn two is not going to carry you to the end game, especially given like... That's if you get to play a spell on turn two. You probably, right? you probably don't. Especially because your top end gets outscaled by the most played deck in the format. Like Mono Green Devotion easily outscales you. So I, I just don't know what we're doing with this list. You're like, yo, big finish, Cavalier Flame. And they're just like, uh, block it, kill yeah. you. Like, yeah, who cares? I get the cards. See, like, there's a lot of very nice cards in this list, like very powerful cards. You get your companion. That's all super attractive. This was not a good choice for this tournament. It was kind of the new hotness, right? And the weird thing about it is that they had plenty of time to figure out that it was not. Yeah. Sometimes the narrative is, is you know, more powerful than reality. Yeah. And it being the new hotness was enough to go ahead and propel it to very, very high numbers of play for a deck with like, you know, without significant real results in the format without having made its, its way into sort of the paper scene yet and really dominating things there. So uh, I think a good lesson for folks who picked up Karuga fires is you, you gotta be careful about the internet buzz. It's not always the right answer. Well, also be cognizant of, what your deck is trying to do and how that fits in with the rest of the format, right? Look at look at all the decks. It all centers on mono green devotion that just builds like this absurdly wide board and will combo kill you basically through anything. And then the format has evolved to the point where one of the things that is the best at beating that deck is just like, oh, I'll, I'll just kill him, I guess, and play mono white aggro. And yep. then you're like, I'll just uh, you know value some people with Omnaths and who I, who are you valuing? Right. I mean, it's I mean, Rakdos. That's the answer, but that's that's uh, not enough. Yeah, kind of. Um, and then you know your your only fetches are Fabled Passage, which is both not a lot and not ideal. Then you finish the game with like Cavalier Flame because you can't find anything better, and it's like, come on, not not good enough for Pioneer. It's just not. It's not a good enough end game. I, I think that, yeah, there are like some formats in time, but certainly like not this one at, at this point in time, right? It's just when when you look at a deck and you're like, ah, I kind of want to cut like 20 of these cards. It's like, well, <laughs> that's a problem. Yeah. And then Karuga's not doing you any favors. Like the decks that are built around fires usually aren't going to run out of gas, right? Like you just have so much stuff that you could be doing alongside that card. And you don't need a companion to like get you an extra like draw three or whatever. It's yeah, just, I, I think there's meta games where like I would I would push back against that sentiment a little bit, but this is not one of them. Like they're more akin to standard meta games where Karuga could matter in those spots, but not not here. This it's just not how these games are going to be played. 
And that's not even how standard is right now. No, not right now. Certainly not. But yeah, it's, I don't know. You have like, oh, my, my card advantage engine. And then you're still just getting walloped by control decks, right? It's, it's, it's not helping you there at all. It's not helping you against the fast decks. And basically every deck has to be at least a little bit fast, either, you know, fast interact or be putting you on a clock or be threatening to combo you on turn four or whatever. And yeah, you're trying to do like Omnath and Karuga. It's just, it's not a great plan. No, thanks. If you like fires, play enigmatic fires. I, I think you are at least passable in some other matchups. You get to play a better companion. You get a B plan, which is nice. You're just as weak to control. You're still pretty weak to devotion, but your other matchups I think are just way better. Yeah. And you can always just devote a ton of cards to beating humans. I think that that is pretty reasonable. Yeah. And sure. Having having the backup engine with incarnation and that leading to a decent amount of free wins and also just being a better endgame, I think, than Cavalier of Flame. Yeah, absolutely. The, the Tougher big, deck to play against, I think. Yeah, no, that too. Open deck list, lol, who cares? Like it, your deck is 21 ofs or whatever. Good, mm-hmm. good luck playing around it. The problem is that you don't have a great incarnation sort of like chain to actually put the screws to mono green. You can do like a small thing, right? Like agent of treachery, a thing or whatever, mm-hmm. but then, then that's just kind of it. And that's not enough to beat them. It's good. It's not bad. You know, it's better than Cavalier flame. Right. But yeah. most things are. So if the deck were to figure out something along those lines, just like some way to, yeah, I don't, I don't think it can. I, I don't think so either, but if you are going to work on an aspect of the deck, it should be that. Sure. That makes sense. Uh, yeah, I also think probably the task has gotten harder with, I expect Mono Green Devotion getting a pretty big upgrade. So, uh, you know, for this tournament, I think Enigmatic Fires was a fine choice. Karuga Fires was a poor choice. Going forward, maybe I don't want to touch either of them. I, I sort of think that <laughs> that we're going to see Mono Green uptick. Maybe not week one. Like, if I had to play an event this weekend, maybe you could go ahead and look at the Fires decks again. But if you're talking a month from now, two months from now, six weeks from now, maybe when you have your next uh, RCQ. Yeah, I don't I don't know if you could talk me into these fires decks at that point. I will say the local metagames are pretty weird. And Fair. it also doesn't seem like this system is picking up steam. Obviously, no. it's it's all kind of like conjecture. But, you know, Josh and I were traveling to a lot of the RCQs in Northern Virginia, Maryland, that area. And he told me that he heard about like a two slaughter that had 11 people or something. And it's like, yep. okay, yeah, it's, it's, it's died down a little bit. Oh yeah. Two, two local PTQs for me this weekend, a one slaughter got nine people brother lost in the finals of that one. A two slaughter one K got, I believe under 16 people. Now, you know, there's there's a lot of things you can say about that. You can say the RC was going on. You can say whatever. There's a whole host of excuses. People tweeted my direction to kind of justify why this system is okay. And I think at this point, I cannot get through to those people how desperate the situation is because in my area, the capital region of New York. I mean, I, don't, don't be disingenuous. You know, people are going to think NYC if you say that. Well, that's not disingenuous. That's a lack of geography knowledge on people listening. The capital region is upstate New York. It's near the Albany area. Yeah, that's why I'm saying. Okay. Like you, you know that that lack of knowledge probably exists, right? I honestly, I I didn't think of that, but that's fair. I'm, I'm sure it does exist out there. Well, it's, it, just, it's just so funny to refer to it as like the capital area of New York. Yeah, that's what like, every, uh, everyone here calls it. That so, like, I I just am ingrained in it. But yes, fair point. Maybe it's to make themselves feel better. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe we, I mean, we are technically the capital. If you've ever spent any time in uh, Albany, New York, you wouldn't believe it given the stuff that's here. <laughs> I, dude, I've been to some state capitals, man. I yeah. Know, yeah. I understand. You know how it goes. It's like, yeah, you, you made this decision uh, at a different time. I yeah. In the 1700s when yeah. trade was flowing up and down the Hudson river was when this decision was made. But regardless, if we go back in time, so I, I played an RCQ here during the last season, 18 people. So still not great numbers. If you want to talk about the one before that, I played in the Albany region. It was in a hotel ballroom. There was 196 people. This was at a time when a fraction of the people played magic. The system was much worse. It was a one slot 
PTQ. Like there's, I mean, there's no, there's no way you can tell me there's not some kind of issue going on. And the issue stems down to the fact that you're not qualifying for a pro tour. You're qualifying for a GP. Yes. And when a thousand people qualify for something, that's not actually a qualification system. That's a gating system. Correct. And that is the biggest problem we have right now with this system. Yes, but Magic has had that issue for a while where the three, 400 people PTQ system was not sustainable. It needed something else. Of course. I, I think, of course. I think the difference is, is that the RC in, so like in, in my mind, I've, I've, I've talked about this before, but like when I was at Wizards uh, late 2013, early 2014, this, this problem was like starting to come up. Right. And people were looking for a solution and they basically came up with gating as a solution, which does make sense. But the problem is, yeah, the thing that you're qualifying for has to actually matter because you're taking away basically the most important aspect of the system, which is every weekend you get to see your friends from a bunch of different regions, right? Because you're all traveling at the same time versus this sort of system that is played on a smaller scale where, you know, if you don't have a friend to go with you, there might not be any friends there. Right. And yeah, I, I wouldn't go to one of these tournaments unless I was bringing a friend with me. Right. It's, Just a very good chance. I don't know anyone in the room. Yeah. And at that point, it's well, I, it's it's my buddy that I live down the street from who maybe I don't even really like that much, but they're there and willing to go, you know, versus I see my 10 friends who I do actually like and don't get to see very often because we live like four hours away from each other. You know. Yep. So no, I, I, Anyway, I just think there's there's a big problem on, on hand, and the more you like bury your hand and be like, oh, look at all the people who showed up for the the RC, a thousand people. Competitive Magic is back. It's all about the gathering. The more you do that shit, the more they get away with it. And what's going to happen yeah. is these stores aren't going to pay for these PTQs. They're they're not going to keep doing it. They're well, losing money all over the place. They shouldn't have to pay for them. They do but though. I they do go to the system. I, I know, and I know. But holy crap, what a load of garbage! You know. Yep. What I was getting at was that the old system was good for the things that basically made like tournament magic grinding good, which was traveling and seeing your friends. And I don't know, like, there's there's something good about playing like an eight round tournament with good competition, right? That, like that is another aspect of it that is yeah, very high stakes too. But that yeah, that system was not sustainable. This system is crap, and part of it is because. You are qualifying for it. Granted, this is the the American one at least was better than a Grand Prix, right? Yep. But when the branding and everything doesn't make it feel that way, and also it's like not the same everywhere, it yeah, it's it's just different, man. It's bad. It yeah. If if I cared about like qualifying for stuff, I still wouldn't care to qualify for the RC, even if it was the same as last weekend's or two agreed weekends. i'm hearing from uh, this is all very anecdotal but a lot of friends are just like yeah i'm done you know i knew people who were at the rc and they were like yep one's enough i don't I, this is not what i was looking for and they're going to be done with it uh you mentioned like the regional differences i know people in canada have their rc coming up this weekend a lot of complaints about that system uh ease of qualification seemed just if you wanted it you've got in certainly dude uh, it is just like the pro tour you just make a phone call like pt1 I guess so. Yeah, it's it's become a very similar system. Uh, I heard about a eight slaughter in Canada that had like nine people and someone dropped. I think before like the the next round. So it, it is just uh, it's not going well in my eyes. And you know you can either bury your head in the sand or you can address it. And I would prefer to address it because there's there's some good stuff going on with competitive magic right now. There is there is like the tiniest bit of momentum that you could potentially seize on. Or you could let it crumble into dust again. And what are you going to do? Well, I know the answer. but Yeah, we know the answer. But it's not quite as slow moving as designing a set, right? Like we talked about the lag last week for things like that. But there, there is a lot of planning and communication and organization that goes into planning an organized play system. Absolutely. And so naturally there is going to be some lag time. Like even now, if they're like, oh, well, like, Stores are contacting us and saying it's not working and people are, you know, posting on social media about how these events aren't fun or whatever, or the numbers are just going down and they're looking at that data and everything. Even if they look at that and say, this is bad, it's going to take a lot of time to fix it. So 
that's when you need your spokespeople to step up and be like, yep, we recognize it. We're doing something about it. Yes. I mean, that would be great. But anytime they do that, I think that they're worried about, I don't know, that eventually delivering and then people being like, oh, you said you're working on it and like, this isn't a good fix or whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know, because like that certainly would happen. And I think that that disincentivizes them from saying anything to begin with, which sucks because the players don't know what's going on. And I don't know, they're, Watsy's just going to get lambasted no matter what they do anyway. So, yeah, yeah, they can't win, but I don't know. When I think about those type of decisions, I think I want to communicate to the people who are engaging in good faith. And I know that's not going to be everyone. I know I'm going to lose on this from some people who just like want to have a gotcha moment. And that is what it is. But ultimately, the people, if you engage with the people who are there in good faith, they can then be your voice and you shape the narrative more broadly by doing that. Like your message may not get out, but if, if OP comes out and engages with you and I, and you and I come and do this podcast and you're like, well, this was a really encouraging message from OP. Look at all these things they said. I'm, you know, it's going to take time, but I respect that they came out and said this. Okay. And that's another point in the narrative starting to move in another direction. And that is how you were able to actually, you know, communicate effectively, even if in the moment your communication feels like it's being obscured and, you know, taken over by trolls, there is still effective communication being done if you're an effective communicator, if you have good systems in place for it. Yeah. So. You know, you know, how most games have a community manager, right? Yeah. Yeah. Magic just kind of needs like a bunch of different ones. Uh, yeah. Because well, magic is a bunch of different games. I mean, that makes yeah. make sense. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I think that that would make a lot of sense. And then that person could be like spokesperson slash representative slash, you know, player liaison or whatever. And then, we had meetings with some of the higher ups at the pro tours, like on the regular, basically, you know, like 30 or 40 gold and platinum pros. And that didn't really go well, but you know, it's like you get a smaller group of those folks just like talking to a community manager. And I think that things are going to be like a lot more civil and it's less arguing and more of like, we pass on feedback and then that person passes it up the chain or whatever. But if you have someone who's, a community manager who their job focus is, you know, mostly work with the commander community or whatever, which is if there is one community manager, that is probably what they should be doing. Right. But yep. then they're not necessarily familiar with the competitive side of things and the experience of, I don't know, just like grinding and going to tournaments and what players expect and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, that's, that's why I feel like it should be split. Cause you're right. It is, it is basically different games, you know? And I, I think that that sort of system could work, but I also think that they've been burned a lot in the past by trying to do stuff like that. And I don't think just throwing your hands up and not working on it is really a good solution, but I understand how they get to that place. So do I. So, I don't know. We're, we're going to be in the dark. If, if something changes, it changes. Cool. Uh, hopefully it's good. And I don't know. I wouldn't expect it to be, I guess, but <laughs> me neither, but I'm always, I'm always hopeful. Even if I don't expect it, I'm still hopeful. In I the meantime, that little, little thread of hope. In the meantime, if y'all want to qualify, uh, there is probably no better time. Cause I think that it's these tournaments crazy. are probably pretty small. Uh, yep. again, we're sort of cherry picking our, our, our data, things that we're hearing and whatnot, but I don't know. I'm, I'm. It's not like I'm hearing a lot of the opposite either. Like, oh, this was so fun. This tournament was so great. It had a bunch of people. Blah blah blah. You know, it's like you do only hear about the small ones, but I think that that's mostly because that's what's happening. I hear a lot of positive feedback from people who are paid to be at events. I don't know if there's a correlation there, but it, it sure seems like whenever you get one of those, you know, it's hard to say. Yeah. Uh, I mean, who seems like they're all having a great time. Who is getting paid to be at RCQs? Or are you just talking about the RC? RCs, you know, other, you know, influencer driven events. Yeah, it just seems like uh, anytime you get paid to go somewhere, it's a top notch experience. So publicly, <laughs> publicly. Yeah. Haven't publicly. haven't been on that side of things in a previous life publicly. Hey, get those papers, kids. That's what I'm saying. Get paid. I did. It was nice. It was good. Good. Rectus mid-range, is it Phoenix, mono-white humans, Missouri's control, what do we want to talk about? I I am surprised mono-white humans didn't do better, honestly. Like, and it, it's not that it did poorly, 52% win rate, 
I sort of thought this might have been the best choice. And I guess if you look at the uh, the win rate matrix against the top five decks, you can make an argument it was the best choice. 58% against Mono Green Devotion, 52 against Reactos, 52 against Is It Phoenix, and 61 against Azorius Control. So when you're facing this real focused, like top tier part of the metagame, Mono White Humans, kind of awesome. Really good choice. Good matchups against everyone. I guess when things got a little broader is when Mono White Humans started to struggle a little bit more. Yeah, not not faring too well against the other category would be my guess. Uh, yeah, interesting. See. Other versus humans, now nah, 52%. So, I don't know. What, what so, it's got to just be that middle of the pack, I guess. I, I I don't really know what else to make of it. Yeah, just like has some 40s and 50s, and that just kind of is what it is. But Yeah. I, Mono White has basically been the deck that I've been recommending to people. Like, I've had, oh, God. For some reason, uh, Pioneer... Uh, people are just like, yo, what should I play? And it's like, just coming out of the woodwork too. Like people I haven't talked to in like two years. I think because there's no good answer. So that that's why that question is so prevalent. Maybe. Yeah, that could be it. And my answer is always, it is metagame dependent. Certainly because things can shift pretty dramatically if there's, you know, 30% mono green or 5% mono green, right? Like that, that would definitely make me want to pursue wildly different deck choices Mm -hmm. but in the dark if you think that mono green is going to be reasonably represented i think humans is great and i agree with you yeah like rakdos is tough but even here it had a a positive matchup against rakdos which is odd maybe rakdos just gunning too much for mono green i don't know Uh, rakdos just has 50 50 matchups against everyone i mean there's there's nothing that they target effectively at this point because they're split in so many directions like i don't get me wrong i do believe that if you had to build a rakdos deck to beat any one of these format pillars you could probably do so and get a nice metagame get get a nice matchup percentage get to like 60 percent for whatever matchup you really wanted to focus on the problem is you have to account for all of them the field is too open for a deck like rakdos to succeed so it's just going to be 50 percent against everything and that's not always reflected in your game to game experience obviously you may play the rakdos players who are slanted towards humans and have a very bad time but i think overall you're you're looking at a 50 percent deck through and through yeah, it's tough, right? Because humans is coming at you from the one drop creature angle. Mono green devotion is going big. Is it Phoenix is graveyard plus card advantage plus kind of a clock sort of thing. And then the next biggest thing is just actual hard control, like creatureless control. It's like, how do you build a mid range deck to beat on all, all of those things? Right. And the answer is you can't, right? Like yeah. normally, normally you have to sack one of them and it looks like. Maybe they were sacrificing a little bit on the the human end of things. Could be. Could, I mean, it's it's easiest to sacrifice in the spots where you think your deck naturally lines up well, right? Like you just think Rakdos, like okay, you know, I, I got my creatures, I got my removal, everything's good. How much of a problem can humans actually be? Just go with the default list. I'll probably roll at like fifty percent. It'll all be good. And I see how you talk yourself into that spot. Yeah. And I don't know, looking at the example list, uh, Eli Loveman's from the top eight, like 12 spot removal spells, sure, but eight of them cost two, Mm -hmm. which is not great. And then you have stuff like Croxa, which is definitely not good in the matchup. Trespasser is okay, but definitely not good. And then Loveman had three Misery Shadows, which, you know, gives you... A little splash damage against everyone. Yeah, a little splash damage, but like an added clock against Mono Green too, which is nice. But I don't think that is the type of card that you would play if you cared about Mono White, and certainly not three of them, right? Like you you can never afford to draw the second copy. The second copy is effectively dead. But the sideboard certainly respects the deck a decent amount. Like two spot removal spells, four sweepers, right? Like that is, that's a good amount of interaction in the sideboard. But yeah, it looks like the, the main deck is just like, a little, little too slow, a little too clunky to really compete against Mono White all the time. Yeah, I mean that's that's another way of hedging, like not hedging towards the matchup. Right, it's just saying like, okay, I'll play my games one, my game one's very weak against it, and then I'll look to get stronger in two and three. That's that's a fine plan, but like when you know you're playing your game one's very weak, you need a lot of help in those twos and threes. Yeah, people always say like, oh, just you know, board in eight cards and win game two and three, and it's like. I, I don't know. One of those games you're on the draw, like it, yep. get, it gets a lot harder. 
I don't know if you can just like very easily wrap it up in the post board games. Uh, Even if you're pushing your matchup to like 65%, like you're that's that's not great. You still have to go ahead and get those two results. That's that's still a big ask. Right. So I don't know. I, I think that this was probably a good call considering how much the shadows help against you know the random fires decks and stuff like that too, right? But in, in terms of like mono white stuff, like that matchup starts slipping away from you a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Phoenix is a deck that I don't know, like just fell off for a while. And I was actually surprised to see that the numbers were so high, but I guess it is just like a comfort pick for a lot of people, right? Yeah, I think it's a comfort pick. I think it also serves a particular type of player very well. Uh, the kind that can like, pretty easily show up to their local RCQ and get that invite very much suited towards moving towards, is it Phoenix? And I mean, let's not forget how powerful spells are in this deck. It, it gets to play some absolutely ludicrous magic cards. So I, I don't think there's anything wrong with this choice. I think it is sort of similar to Rakdos and that I don't expect hard spikes in your matchup matrix. Like I think you're just pretty even against everyone. But if you think you have a lot of play skill to leverage, if you're very comfortable with this archetype, a fine choice. No objections. And Phoenix was 53 against Devotion, 45 against Rakdos, 48 against Humans, and 54 against Control. Like, yeah, pretty close to 50%. And I think that those numbers could be adjusted slightly in in certain directions. Like, if, if you wanted to beat up on Humans, you certainly could. If you wanted to be a little bit more robust against Control, you could. Uh, Rakdos is tough because a lot of the things that are good against them are your graveyard cards, which they're kind of mm-hmm. coming after. But uh, I think they're a little bit lower on graveyard hate in general. I guess the the shadow might help a little bit with that, make it so you don't have to play as much. But sure, it's yeah, it is. It is interesting. I mean, if you told me that I could have like this kind of spread with uh, a stock Phoenix list, I'd get to work absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that seems fine. Like, yeah, I could I could pick up some points like here and there, and then it's it's actually looking pretty good. And then blue white, can we just get blue white? Yeah, I don't have anything to say about blue white. Hell, I mean, yeah. it's it's like fine. I I don't know. I don't know how I would talk myself into it. Yeah, as, as much as I may want to, I don't know what the upside is. So. Well, you see, you have answers to everything. It, sure, you do. That's that's the that's the way you you do things when you play control. You get answers for everything, and sometimes answers are not as good as threats. Dude, in this format, I, I would hope that if if nothing else, this format can teach you that. Yeah. And then the rest of this article on Magic.gg has some brews, uh, one of which is green-white auras, which also did pretty well. It was like 54%, I think. Yeah, 54%. yeah I mean, extremely, extremely small sample size on that one. Yeah, 50, 54.7. Like a fourth 7, of Lotus Fields. 54.7. Bad against Rakdos, medium against humans, bad against control, but great against Devotion and pretty good against Phoenix. So maybe that's something worth investigating going forward. And some some like new pickups in this deck too, like Audacity yeah, doing yeah. some work and Yeah, fake Rancor showing up. Yeah. I don't know. Looks looks good to me. Solid, yeah. Uh some some weird combo decks, some Storm Herald. From Mark Tobias. Uh, yeah, do they have the, the Grinning Ignis list here? Yep. That, that's an interesting one. I, I can't tell you how much Grinning Ignis I played back in the day. Like, I was so sure Grinning Ignis was the most broken card, and I've invested a lot of time into it, and it's not good. And it's probably not good here, but I love it. Like, I just absolutely love it. And I am inspired by all the work done for this Grinning Ignis combo deck. And I... Don't think it's going to go ahead and show up all over the place, but if it did, it'd be a, it'd be a bright day for me. Finally, Green Ignis getting its moment in the sun, not even having to use Intruder Alarm. How nice is that? Yeah, and I mean this this is a deck that can certainly combo faster than Mono Green, and yeah. has a combo that's more reasonable to pull off against Mono White than Mono Green's combo is. So. Good search tools. I mean, if you believe Collective Company is a real card, theoretically, that could go ah. ahead and get you some stuff. Uh, Eldritch Evolution, getting things very reliably. You get those like snowbally Risen Reef states going. So yeah, there's just a lot to like here. I I think for a combo deck, I'm 
sure that any sort of focus towards this deck in the metagame, it would fold just immediately. Like it's not gonna, it's not gonna hold up to any scrutiny. But as a off the wall, out of nowhere choice, love the choice to bring this deck. Yeah. And then that's that's about it. Yep, that's that's the format in a nutshell. I think it's it's fine. Uh, it's very linear. There is still room to tinker. I don't know if like maybe brew is fair. I mean, there's stuff like this this green and ignis combo deck floating around. So maybe you could go as far as brew. I, I think there's definitely room to tinker. There's definitely room to improve sideboard plans. Definitely room to think about setups in various matchups, game planning. All that stuff is still on the table. You're going to still play some clunkers of games, just two ships passing in the night. We're sort of back to that mode. And it's funny that like modern got away from that by printing cards directly into the format, because otherwise the end state of these non-rotating formats is always just two ships passing in the night. It has to be. It almost necessarily has to devolve to that point. And modern had to inject some very specific things to prevent it from going down that road. And now Pioneer might find itself at the same crossroads, and I'm curious how they handle it. Pioneer Masters, let's go wouldn't shock me if they are focused on making pioneer a thing and want to keep supporting it and also like money then yeah it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me i mean it's pretty reasonable to just like print that stuff in into standard sets in a lot of instances and they've been doing a good job of that but it's yep it's not quite the same as like doing a, a solitude kind of thing you know can't really have that go through standard but if standard ceases to exist then who cares I will say it's quite funny how many of the cards on like the most played list are just things that Karn can go get. I I get it. I, I do think that'll often be like the most important thing for Pioneer, especially given that this was an artifact-based format. It makes a lot of sense. But yeah, you, you go through this most played card list, a lot of Karn targets. Our, our buddy Haywire might showing up very high on the list, in fact. So Hell yeah. Uh, yeah, not shocked to see that one. Love that card. I would, I would like to say that I love Pioneer as well, but Jury is still out. It is tolerable. And I guess if Phoenix is good, then maybe I'm in, but I could You got something to play. I think you're going to have a decent time if you're playing Phoenix I most could, of your matches. Yeah, so. I, for a little bit in small doses. Uh, but I could see I would, I would play humans too. I have I have attacked for two a couple times in my day, you know. Mhm. So that's it. Although I'm going to play Lotus Field, Gerald, to the shock of wow. absolutely everyone. Wow. Weird. Just now. Yeah. yeah. Did not see that coming. Uh, I'm al- sure. Although I guess maybe maybe I'll just like keep watch on things and see how much the the mono green stuff does actually turbocharge it. Because like if it just becomes like far and away the best thing and it's like more consistent and faster. Well, then all the problems I had with the deck just kind of go out the window. Yeah, I, I think if it does do that, it'll get banned. I think that's the only end state you can possibly get. Something will get banned. Like, you can't just let it go anymore. I would have to learn how to do things, though. And I don't really yeah, want to do that. No. Unless you're a chain veil expert, don't even bother. I'm definitely not a chain veil expert. Mm, you're going to be disappointed. Damn. Game. Good luck.